Vote integrity and voter fraud. How accurate will the 2020 elections be? Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute provides some insights. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, audience. Welcome back to the show. Today's episode is about the integrity of our voting system around the country for the 2020 election cycle. And to help us with this discussion, we once again welcome Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute. Welcome back, sir. Uh, Good to be back. It's terrific to have you. And as I understand it, you're about to release a new book. Yeah, less than ten, two weeks later, later this month. It's called uh, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. So timely about Supreme Court, uh, judicial battles, all that stuff in the news goes back historically, talks about reform proposals. I think you'll like it if you buy it. Yeah, and we've got a pretty uh, hotly contested election cycle. So my imagination tells me that a lot of people are going to be interested in, uh, in that kind of content today. Well, I, I hope so. I, there, there's a lot of use for you know constitutional analysis and figuring out what these judges are doing and their interpretive theories. And ultimately, that's why we have these judicial battles, because we have this trend where different interpretive theories map onto partisan preferences at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted than uh, probably since the Civil War. Well, speaking of which, we have this uh, big election uh, cycle coming up, and uh, it's historic in a lot of ways, you know, because we've got this uh, this prominence towards mail-in voting because of COVID-19. And so, uh, Ilya, you know, we had a, I just recently had an episode on that was talking about mail-in voting, and basically we took the, the perspective of the voter, you know, trying to make sure that they avoided the pitfalls of getting dropped off the voter registration list. And then if they do have a ballot at home, you know, ways to ensure by filling it out, you know, check certain boxes to make sure it gets counted. But the one thing we didn't talk about was the integrity of the system and, uh, you know, highlighting any weak spots in the system. And so that's what I wanted to have you on today. You know, we've obviously researched this topic and you wrote it, you know, a wonderful piece, you know, in Cato Institute, it was titled election regulation during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'll put it in the show notes, but I highly recommend uh, listeners to take a read of that. Before we get into the mail-in part of it, Ilya, I wanted to just check in with you about the status of in-person voting places. And, you know, obviously COVID-19 concerns, people want to maintain some social distance you know, for themselves, for the people that they live with. But, you know, what's the latest with the, the uh, in-person voting places around the country in terms of closures, age of poll workers, and possibly safe options for in-person voting? Well, it's hard to talk nationally because elections in our country are regulated by the states and often by localities. And so my number one tip for voters is check what your rules are. Things might have changed since the last election. If you haven't voted since 2016, a lot might have changed. So the polling places, the procedures, uh, what you need to do to get a mail-in ballot, all, all of these different things are different. But a lot of states are have put in new processes for COVID-19 to change the hours of the polling locations, to change the location to allow more space for uh, if people are lining up to vote and, and outside, hopefully. The procedures for requesting a mailed ballot or an absentee ballot. I live in Virginia. We have a pretty uh, a liberal regime in terms of what kind of excuse you need to, to vote absentee. And COVID is now one of those accepted uh, excuses. So I've already requested my mail-in ballot. And then th- those mail-in ballots, if you don't trust the postal service or you, you've dilly-dallied, it's the day before the election, you can drop that off at the location site in a, in a secure box. So, but you need to find all of this stuff out. It's available online. There are phone hotlines and and things like this. What I'm really concerned about, though, isn't so much fraud or 
shenanigans or, or things like this, but the vote count might not happen on uh, actual election day with all of these streams of mail-in ballots. And so people might doubt from whatever ideological side you're on, whether you're supporting Biden or Trump or a third party, confidence in the election results is key. And if all of these new procedures aren't clarified and made transparent to the voters, that's going to detract from the perceived legitimacy of the process. You know, I'd heard about that. Uh, A lot of people were thinking that uh, as of election night, people will go to bed thinking it's one candidate and then wake up, you know, maybe a week later, a couple weeks later, as all the counting comes in from these sort of new processes that that could change. And so there's some worry about that causing some, uh, I guess, frustrations and, you know, possible protests uh, following the election. So Ilya, let me ask you about the mail-in voting process. I know my prediction, based on what I'm reading, is this will probably be the biggest cycle historically we've ever had for mail-in ballots. And so I just wanted to check in with you on that. You know, in terms of what you're reading, in terms of your research, historically it's been a much smaller number. But what are you predicting in terms of percentages of voters voting with mail-in ballot this election cycle? Well, it's hard to predict. I'm not a statistician, so you know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, but obviously it's going to be a lot more than we've ever had. So five states already have fully mail elections. Elections, uh, you know, even before the pandemic. And I think their experience, states, I hope other states are, are drawing on them. And there's a distinction, there's kind of a confusion about what mail in balloting means. California, uh, I think, has fallen down a little in that they've sent ballots to all voters on their rolls, and they don't do a particularly good job of cleaning the rolls. So these ballots, who knows where they're going? Actual voters who have moved are not getting their ballots. Other people are getting, you know, other people's ballots. And then when they're collected, there's this problem of ballot harvesting. That is, someone who's not the voter is picking up all these ballots. And maybe if they suspect you, you're voting the quote unquote wrong way, they'll, they just won't submit it. So, you know, the, the voter really has to take the initiative to make sure that they get their ballot if they want one and they're getting it at their proper address. And that they're submitting it on time, either through the mail or, or drop off at their, at their election location. You know, I read your piece and uh, in the piece that you weren't terribly concerned with voter fraud, as you just commented here. But I did find some uh, in my preparation. I did find an article by the Heritage Foundation that I'd love a little bit of uh, your insight on. And so they they basically did the study where they pulled from 50 states and the territories uh, in past elections, and it dated back to 1982. And so this is what they found. And they said it was not an exhaustive list. It's just what who got caught, who who uh, who was what they were able to prove the authorities. And so they came up with a list of uh, one. 1,296 proven instances of voter fraud. And of those, 1,120 criminal convictions uh, came from those. And so I did a little loose count. And the reason it's a loose count is because you couldn't download the spreadsheet. And I kind of had to go with the uh, number of fields and pages and everything. And so I estimated. So grain of salt here. I counted 195 instances that seemed to be aimed at the absentee ballot fraud issue. And so why did it kind of turn that back to you? That that seems like a high number to me, but you're much closer to this information than I am. So perhaps provide a little context to that. Well, we're a, we're a huge country, right? 340 million people of whom I think 60% are eligible voters, something like that. And so over a period of decades to have you know, that number of fraud incidents is not unexpected. I mean, no election is perfect. There's, uh, you know, not everybody is an angel. So you're going to have uh, incidents, but it's it's relatively low, meaning certainly at a national level or, or for statewide races, 
uh, it's not going to change the, uh, the the result. Where it can and has had an impact is at local races. I think a couple of months ago in Patterson, New Jersey, the race was thrown out because they found a, a certain number of, of fraudulent ballots. And fraud does occur slightly more with mailed ballots than in person. So there's a you know highly partisan toxic debate about voter ID. There's not that much in-person fraud. A little easier to do it with mailed ballots, again, because you can get somebody else's ballot, forge a signature, things like that. It's relatively easier to do if you have that kind of criminal mindset. Overall, I wouldn't worry about it at a, at a national level. As I said, at, at local races, it's, it starts uh, becoming a problem. And one other thing, by the way, that I wouldn't worry about is like Russian or Chinese hacking. For one thing, uh, they would have to hack every state or all the swing states, which is which is hard to do because we don't have a, a national central registry. For another, there's nothing really to hack because the these these things are not connected to the internet. Uh, you can't change results or you know put in fake ballots that way. So a lot of these concerns that tend to make the headlines aren't really the problems, but the voter counting or you know ballots being misplaced or dropped or not counted in time, just kind of the system being overwhelmed. That's more of a, a problem than than potential fraud. I think. You know, I want to dive in a little deeper. Definitely want to get into a little bit more in-depth discussion about those vulnerabilities that you mentioned a little earlier when it comes to the mail-in voting process. And so uh, the first one I want to talk about is mailing to incorrect addresses. And so, you know, states like Colorado, a state that I grew up in, um, I grew up with the absentee ballot. That's my preferred voting method. And, you know, since moving to California, I've done that again. But uh, as I understand it, uh, not all states are going to be in the same position as as Colorado, who's been doing it for a while you know, knocking out the kinks, making sure they've got all the systems in place. And so now it's just a matter of scaling up. But uh, other places have had some historic difficulty for it. So I guess, you know, how and why does that occur? And then could you share a story maybe from Baltimore City or Montgomery County, how those ballots were laid or not received, what was going on there? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the problem in trying to put in new systems ahead of a very divisive uh, partisan election during a pandemic, which a lot of states are doing. The sort of best practices is not just to send out ballots to every voter on your rolls. Uh, I mean, best practices to clean your rolls. If somebody hasn't voted uh, in a while, in several cycles, you send them a postcard. Uh, are you still there? Are you still interested in voting? And then they send that back and they, they confirm. Otherwise, they're taken off. That's how you clean uh, clean the, the the rolls of people who have moved out of state or died or, or, or whatever the case might be. But when you don't do that and you just, um, you don't depend on the voter to request a ballot or to send back their postcard, then you get a lot of these ballots that go to who knows where. Yeah, in, in Baltimore City and Montgomery County as well, Maryland elections recently, ballots were never received by a lot of voters or they were late in coming because they were you know, mailed out too late. Again, new processes put in place too close to an election. So, you know, I talk about best practices or how to you know do things in my paper or what we've been discussing. But right now it's uh, we're recording this September 9th. The election is less than two months away. I would not be putting in new processes at this point. At this point, it's just communicating to voters what your systems are so they know and it's all transparent. Yeah, no, that's that's alarming. And, uh, you know, such a tight election, every vote counts. And so obviously, you know, this is one of those things we're just going to have to kind of grin and bear it as Americans. But I uh, wanted a couple more of these uh, points of vulnerability. So ballot harvesting, you know, I did some reading about that. I heard a, a lot of different terms kind of bandied about in, in description of that. But basically, it's not illegal. So, you know, just if you could help the audience out, the voting public out there, you know, what is it? You know, where does it typically occur? And then, you know, what are those risks associated with, you know, people that want to commit fraud through ballot harvesting? And then the last part of that is how are the states mitigating that? Sorry to throw a multi-part question at you. No, sure. Uh, ballot harvesting is is generally what people call it when someone 
goes around collecting ballots from from people. And most states have restrictions. You can only turn in two or five maximum ballots, or they can only be from family members, things like that. Some states don't have that restriction. I think California is actually one of them. And so that's one of the reasons why in the 2018 election, for example, a lot of, as you alluded to earlier, we went to bed thinking that uh, some of the uh, members of Congress were reelected. And then the next day or a week later, as the, as these late collected uh, harvested ballots got tabulated, things changed. The problem here isn't just this late count. Uh, it's also the idea that if, if someone is, is collecting ballots from a particular area, if they know that someone is, is going to vote for the candidate they don't like, they might just, oops, forget to drop that one off. Or they might collect these ballots that are being mailed out that we just discussed to, to places where the voter no longer lives. Well, I'll just fill out that ballot for myself and, and drop it in. And so these other kind of restrictions and regulations limiting the numbers or that it can only be from the same family, uh, those are the sorts of things that, that, that limit the possibility of fraud in that context. All right, last point of vulnerability for mail-in ballots. So voter coercion. And so this is the one that breaks my heart because I always think of uh, grandmas and grandpas out there that really want to vote. And so where does this typically happen? Who is doing it and why? And what is their motivation? You know, Are they working for somebody? What, what goes on there? A lot of it happens at assisted living facilities, other places with vulnerable populations, whether the, the disabled, the elderly, where you have someone being uh, too helpful, if you will, in, in helping a voter fill out uh, his or her ballot. It's not, uh, you know, co- we think coercion, you know, someone's pointing a gun at you. It's not, it's not something like that. It's more just, you know, indicating, you know, you have to vote that way or you won't get your next uh, medicine or I won't help pay for your next what procedure, whatever the thing is. Those kinds of pressures that are sometimes put uh, on voters who are easily uh, uh, swayable. It's nefarious. There's not much that really can be done with it about it. Uh, again, kind of like fraud. We don't know the the extent of it. Uh, you know, hopefully it's it's not affecting a, a widespread races. And one other thing, at base, we're, we're talking about this because of the pandemic and people are concerned about their health going to the polls. We've had uh, several in the last six months, uh, primary elections, local elections, and there's been there's not been an indication of those being super spreader events. Uh, Wisconsin famously, right at the beginning of the pandemic in March, had a lot of polling locations closed because a lot of the polling workers are elderly and they didn't want to show up. Uh, among other things, people were standing in line. As long as you social distance, you know, wear a mask, hopefully you're outside waiting in line rather than inside. A lot of precautions have been put into place. So it is a risk, certainly, but it's not, uh, oh, you go to the polls, you're going to die. It's it's not dire like that. So every voter needs to determine for him and herself whether to go the mail-in route, the absentee route, uh, drop off, or, or do the in-person thing on election day. I always ask people this, you know, make predictions. And so just, you know, you're close to these issues, you've studied it, you know, what is the probability in your mind percentage wise that we'll have a final determination on the night of the election? That's part A. And then part B, just to close it out, what recommendations do you have for grandmas and grandpas out there or family members of grandmas and grandpas to make sure their vote gets counted and that it'll be counted the way that they intended? Well, the, the the last one uh, I sort of hit on already, and that's to you know make a make a decision for yourself what kind of risk you want to tolerate, how big the risk is. If you want to vote absentee, go ahead and request your ballot. We're probably coming up on deadline soon with that. Make sure you're registered and and request your ballot. A lot of states have uh, early voting, so it's not just on that Tuesday in November where that's election day. You can come the weekend before, two weekends before sometimes, and uh, presumably there's going to be less people there at that time. So there there are different options, but you not you need to figure 
figure out state by state, community by community, how they're running things this time so that you can make an informed decision. As to the probability that we'll have a final determination, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. It'll come down to, you know, the same swing states as in 2016 in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, who knows, it might open up to uh, Arizona, Michigan, Georgia, who knows? It's, I think, some of those states where if it's close enough and there's a whole wave of mail-in ballots that don't get counted until late, that's the real key. But we really won't know even the probability until earlier that election day. Well, thank you, Ilya. It was wonderful having you back on the air with us today. Thank you. Take care. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. It helps the show climb the ranks. And also, we'll cite our sources for this episode on our website, LegalTalkNetwork.com, so you can read those for yourselves. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.